0: This is an Urcasia special episode, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to the first ever Ergasia special. My name is Brendan Byrne and I have the pleasure of being your host. Through the course of 2018, I hope to have a number of special episodes of Ergasia. These will be episodes outside the normal framework of this podcast which offer something a little different from the regular episodes of Ergasia and Ergasia Digest. Interviews reports about particular events in which I've been involved, that sort of thing. So let's get started. This is Ergasia Special Number 1, Workers' Worship, a Conference Review, Part 1. Recently I attended an all-day event called the Work as Worship Retreat. It wasn't so much a retreat as a conference featuring a number of speakers addressing the theme of work as a means by which Christians might offer worship to God. The conference was organized by an American Christian media group called Right Now Media, and apparently they've been holding the Work as Worship Retreat in Dallas, Texas for the past seven years. What made this year's conference different, according to the introductory blurb by Right Now President Brian Moseley, was that this was the first year the conference had involved churches. Whereas previous retreats had been aimed at business leaders, this year's event sought to involve churches as well, in order to connect what happened on Sunday to what happens during the rest of the week. And that's how I happened to find myself turning up one Saturday morning, to a suburban church in the inner western suburbs of Melbourne. Not because I'm a business leader, but because the conference was being made available via webcast, and the church in question was kindly hosting that webcast for anyone who wanted to come along and watch. So it was that I and about half a dozen other people, along with some folks from the hosting congregation, settled down to watch the Work as Worship retreat. The retreat began with a welcome by the aforesaid Mr. Moseley. He explained how the Work as Worship retreat began as a means of exploring questions such as how do Christians live out their faith at work, what would happen if faith intersected with work, and what does it mean for work to be a form of worship of God. All very important questions, ones to which I hoped the speakers at the retreat would all respond. And then Mr Moseley said something rather extraordinary. In planning for this year's retreat, the folks at Right Now wanted to know how they could include the church in the retreat in order to enable the church to serve business and business leaders. It was this reflection that had led them to hit upon the idea of making a webcast specifically available to churches around the world. Now, I was rather struck by Mr Moseley's choice of words, Of course, in talking about enabling the church to serve business and business leaders, he may just have meant serve in the best Christian sense of the term, that is to be present as an embodiment of the gospel, ministering to the world in its many contexts of suffering and harm, of which business and its leaders are indubitably one. However, that word serve is also highly loaded, surely Mr. Moseley needed to clarify what he meant by his use of the term. Because if he meant serve in the subservient sense of the term, then I was concerned he and I were not going to see eye to eye about what the interconnection of faith and work involved. But if he did mean serve in the properly Christian sense of the term, why just business and business leaders? Why not middle managers or rank and file employees? Surely they were as much a part of business as business leaders. Unfortunately, Mr Moseley didn't answer these questions. Instead, he introduced the first speaker, Matt Chandler, lead pastor of the village church. Mr Chandler began by confessing that, since it was early in the morning, he was not sure if he was addressing CEOs or entrepreneurs, since in his experience, CEOs tended to be morning people, while entrepreneurs were nighttime people. He then went on to explain that, having participated for a number of years in a men's group, consisting primarily of company CEOs, presidents and founders, he had developed three key ideas when it came to work and faith. Idea number one was that there was no divide between the sacred and the secular. This idea, according to Mr. Chandler, is grounded in Genesis 1.28, the so-called cultural mandate, in which God commands the newly created humanity to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. Thus it was that a creator God, a God who works, made work central to what it means to be human, given that subduing and having dominion over the earth that is, in Mr. Chandler's words, creating order out of chaos, takes work. Thus, all human work is sacred, from the janitors and garbage collectors who clean buildings and take out the trash, right up to CEOs. Idea number two is, in Mr. Chandler's words, family first. No, he doesn't mean the Conservative Christian Political Party here in Australia, He means that whatever the demands which being in business place upon us, the relationships which we have with those who are in our family take priority. We cannot pretend that work is about our family, that success in business will solve our relationship problems, or that a real relationship consists of substituting engagement for material goods and other luxuries. We have to make our relationships with our family members more important than success in business, and it is every individual's responsibility to work out how that will happen. Idea number three is, abiding is the key to life. Drawing on John 15, in which Christ talked to his disciples about how he and God the Father abided in one another, and that the disciples needed therefore to abide in him in order that they might also abide in God and God in them, Mr. Chandler wondered, if we are called to be business leaders, what does it mean to abide in Christ while at work? His answer to this question was to reference Calvin's notion of a rule of life, a structure or pattern of daily, monthly, and annual living that orients the heart and mind toward God. Then it was Mr. Chandler's turn to say something extraordinary. He said that a rule or pattern of life was not to be restricted to those living an overtly religious vocation, monks and nuns and pastors and such, which in itself is not terribly extraordinary. Indeed, it's very much part of the history of Christian faith and practice. Mr. Chandler said, indeed, that a rule of life needs to be practiced by all Christians. But here is where the extraordinary bit came in. According to Mr. Chandler, the test of whether or not any putative rule of life was workable was whether or not it could be practiced by anyone regardless of their station. And by anyone, Mr Chandler meant everyone, and I swear I'm not making this up, from white-collar workers who work 70 hours a week and whose work follows them home, to blue-collar workers who only work 40 hours a week and then go home and forget about work altogether. And on that note, after briefly setting out his own daily, monthly and annual rule of life, Mr Chandler left the stage. The next speaker was Chris Brooks, Senior Pastor at Evangel Ministries in Detroit. Detroit is a city that has experienced severe hardship as a consequence of the double whammy of the global financial crisis and the spectacular collapse of the American motor vehicle manufacturing industry. Indeed, so severe has the crisis been that the city of Detroit was forced to declare bankruptcy some years ago, and the landscape of greater Detroit has become infamous for its post-apocalyptic vista of abandoned factories, derelict houses, and empty lots. Mr Brooks explained the core philosophy of Evangel Ministries, which was that the church existed to enable the flourishing of the community. To that end, his church were sponsoring classes in financial literacy for all age groups, developing relationships with grocery retailers to enable provision of emergency food relief, and were helping get people in touch with the providers of start-up capital so they could develop social enterprises that enabled community development. Mr Brooks argued that Christians need to think critically about what it means to be a Christian within a cultural context, and that accordingly, the role of the church was to facilitate economic renewal that in turn enabled society to move away from poverty relief to wealth creation. Creating such wealth was, according to Mr Brooks, a form of worship of God, and that churches needed a theology of work and economics, if they were to change the way they think about poverty. Mr. Brooks then outlined six key lessons which he and his colleagues at Evangel Ministries have learned from their experience. Lesson one, God loves all cities, even the broken ones, and that churches are placed in the midst of cities to be expressions of God's love. Lesson two, churches are the most effective agents of economic transformation provided they act as communities and not collections of individuals, and provided also they recognise the diversity of talent that existed within the community itself. Lesson 3. Economic development is not at odds with the message of the gospel or the transformative work of Christ. Lesson 4. Poverty is a symptom that is not to be managed but transformed, so that people go from being recipients to producers. Lesson 5. Poverty is not about a lack of resources, so simply throwing money at it won't solve the problem. It is primarily a lack of relationships that enable human flourishing. Lesson 6. Communities need Christian economic development that is ultimately based on humanity being in relationship with God. Mr. Brook's summation of these six lessons was, good deeds produce goodwill, which produces the space into which to preach the good news. The next speaker was Anne Baylor, founder of Auntie Ann's Chain of Pretzel Bakeries. When I say speaker, I use that term rather loosely, as the bulk of Ms. Baylor's presentation was actually a video from a documentary in which she and her husband featured. In this documentary, Ms. Baylor spoke about her early life growing up in an Amish community, getting married and being active within a church community. Then tragedy struck. Baylor's daughter was killed in a farming accident and she herself was then the victim of sexual abuse by a third party. From these traumas she and her husband decided to establish a community counseling service and to support this work Baylor started making pretzels to sell at markets and fairs. The pretzel business slowly grew until a single store became a multitude of stores, then a national, and ultimately an international business. When Ms. Byler finally started speaking on stage, she declared that God uses ordinary and broken people to exercise the divine will. As an example, she cited her own lack of qualifications to found and operate a successful business. She had no education, no capital, and no business experience her conclusion, that her success was a combination of God working miracles, plus her own hard work. From this combination of the miraculous allied with the old-fashioned Protestant work ethic, Ms. Baila argued that having purpose provided three outcomes, the power to overcome obstacles, the power of passion, and the power to obtain a position of influence. With respect to the first of these three powers, Ms. Baylor declared that purpose gave you the power to get out of bed every morning. This in turn enabled you to make money in order to give money to others. And it also enabled you to overcome yourself, your limitations and shortcomings. Ms. Baylor then turned to the power of passion. Purposeful people are passionate people. Passionate people love the thing they are doing, but because they love the thing they are doing, They understand that they are not in X business, whatever X might be. They are in the people business. That's the difference between management and leadership, according to Ms. Baylor. Leaders love their people as well as their product and are determined to get to know them because it's people who grow a business. Finally, the issue of influence. According to Ms. Baylor, influence is obtained by starting out with the right priorities. Her priorities were to create a company with integrity, and integrity that was modelled on leadership, presumably leadership in integrity, although she didn't spell that out. By doing so you can influence others to model their own conduct accordingly. It was not, Ms. Baylor declared, a matter of being perfect. It was simply a determination to strive for excellence. Anne Baylor was followed by Joel Manby, the President and CEO of SeaWorld and author of the book Love Works. Mr. Manby began with a brief biography in which he described growing up in a poor environment in Detroit and how his formative years were marked by two deep impulses, a competitive spirit so that he knew from an early age that he wanted to be in the marketplace and the question of how to be a faithful Christian within such an environment. Manby then went on to briefly explain his time as an executive in the auto industry and how he experienced first-hand management by fear and its corrosive effects. It was from this experience that Mr Manby decided to focus on love in the workplace precisely because of Christ's commandment to love one another as we love ourselves. And the best way we show love, Mr. Manby argued, is through our actions. Mr. Manby then explained how the Greek language contains at least four different ways to say love. Eros, which is passionate love and desire. Philos, which is friendship or affection. Storge, which is the love of parents for their children. And agape, the unconditional love of God and through this of other people. This was the love of which Jesus spoke, according to Mr Manby, and whose qualities are set out by Paul in that well-known passage from his first letter to the Corinthians. It was as a consequence of his reflections upon love, as it is articulated in the Gospels, that Mr Manby developed a number of principles which he decided would be part of his toolkit as a business leader. The first was patience, which Mr Manby described as self-control in difficult situations. It was not being patient with poor performance, however, although it did entail admonishing people privately and not having scapegoats to pin the blame on. As an example, Mr Manby declared that he wasn't going to use organisations like PETA and other animal rights groups as a scapegoat, because their regular protests about SeaWorld's treatment of animals were based on ignorance and not knowing the full facts. Kindness. This was thinking about who to be thankful for, and how you could thank them, which in turn would enable you to encourage and enthuse others. Unselfish. Simply put, thinking of yourself less. As an example, Mr Manby cited his organization's Share It Forward program, which featured on a television program called Undercover Boss. In this program, Mr Manby went incognito into his organization and met some of his low-level employees. One, a man who, two years after his home was destroyed by floods, was still rebuilding. And another employee who, as well as working full-time, was studying business at college. In both cases, the Share It Forward program paid to have the first employee's house repaired, while the second was given a scholarship to study full-time. Trusting. Overcoming the negative impact of fear by creating a climate in which people can place their trust in you. This involves changing the lens through which you look at people. Truthful. Be prepared to speak last. Listen to others. Listen to understand another's perspective then challenge points of view in order to develop critical thinking. Dedicated. You have to balance what you do with what you want to be. I'll be frank, while I understood the point Mr Mamby was making here, I'm not sure how it related to dedication as a principle, unless he meant the kind of intentional existence based on balancing being and doing. Forgiving. Releasing the grip of the grudge. Having expounded these points, Mr Manby concluded his presentation with a plug for his book Love Works, then left the stage. By this time the hosting church decided that it was time for a break and I think that this would be a good time for us to break too. In the next instalment of this Argosia special, the rest of the speakers and a wrap up of the event as a whole. I hope to have the pleasure of your company in future. For more information or to make suggestions, visit the website at www.argosia.podbean.com. I'm your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. This has been an Ergasia special episode. For more information, go to www.ergassia.podbean.com.